Welcome to the Battleground Wisconsin. My name is Matt Ruskin. I'm the Deputy Director here at Citizen Action, and welcome to another week from Wisconsin. However, we're none of us are in the recording studio today. We're all on phone, which means uh, Rebecca Lynch from the Wisconsin Working Families Party is with us. Rebecca? Good to be here, Matt. Great to have you. And, uh, and as always, Robert Craig, our Executive Director at Citizen Action, is with us. Robert? Happy fall, everyone. So uh, I am actually in Pittsburgh today at uh, our Partnership for Working Families uh, Board Convention, or I should say retreat, Uh, but it has been a busy week while we've been away. Um, We will talk about Wisconsin politics. We're going to talk about uh, the Republicans' latest effort to restrict uh, Governor Evers' veto power. We'll also talk about uh, Republican group will that is – certainly surely working with the Republicans to try to remove uh, a couple hundred thousand Wisconsin voters from the rolls. But we're going to get started. Uh, Oh, and we're also going to talk about impeachment. Robert is going to have a conversation with, uh, uh, um, sorry, uh, (laughs) Robert is going to have a conversation with Karen Kirsch, our healthcare organizer at Citizen Action, uh, for the last two segments of the show about impeachment. So look forward to that. But we are going to get started in our first segment here talking about national politics. Uh, it was a big day yesterday, Wednesday, uh, here in the U.S. Uh, Trump was rebuked for his Syria policy in the House. In fact, 129 House Republicans voted against Trump and and uh, his policy, which has led to basically Turkey assu- uh, having a full-out assault on the Kurds. This is big. Um, this is the first time we've seen this scale of Republicans uh, basically rebuking uh, Trump on a huge issue. Rebecca, your thoughts? This is something that there's been almost universal backlash against, including, you know, within the administration, within the president's own political party. It's something that um, has really, like, captured the attention of the international community. And, you know, I'm not surprised that there's been this rebuke. And I know that we um, as a nation have, like, put in sanctions against Turkey um, following uh, its its incursion into the Kurdish territory, but um, this like continues a pattern of like really shocking behavior uh, on the world stage of this president. And you know, there's so much to talk about in terms of you know the the rights of the Kurdish people and the atrocities that have happened and are continuing to happen against that community. But you know, what has like stuck out in the public discourse and what is like all what is part of a larger pattern is how much just from like almost like a rail politics standpoint how much this president is putting our country in danger and in particular by alienating our allies and we've seen it again and again and again and again in like so many different ways and here we have it um happening again in this like incredibly acute way where the Kurdish people um have been allied with the United States and our fight against ISIS. Um, they're also an incredibly precarious position geopolitically vis-a-vis Syria, vis-a-vis Turkey. Um, and uh, we have like been faithful to our allies 
under past administrations, and this sends like a super strong signal that that may no longer be the case. And certainly, in terms of the Kurds, it's not the case. And so, I'm not shocked that there's been rebuke. Um, I'm kind of surprised that it has. I'd be interested to hear what you and Robert think. I'm kind of surprised that it hasn't had as much of an impact as one might think it would um, on the president's decision making, which makes me wonder. What else is going on here behind the scenes between the president and, um, you know, the Turkish government? Like, is there something that there must be something that we're not seeing? Um, because he's really been taking it from all members of his party, you know, leadership, elected leadership, you know, talking heads, people within his administration, but yet hasn't budged. Uh, I, I'm quite frankly confounded. I don't know what do you think, though. Well, it's amazing how Trump has now unified both parties on something, and not just tacitly. There's been plenty of things that Republicans have grumbled about, but one where even the Lindsey Grahams of the world are standing in front of media talking about what an outrage it is. And the outrage is not necessarily that we are pulling troops out of Syria. It's the way we're doing it and the way we're betraying an ally. The Kurds fought alongside us in our uh, efforts to, uh, to to remove ISIS and to end the caliphate and died. In fact, many Kurds died so, uh, uh, doing this in a way that would, over, you know, in terms of national security, actually protect Americans. And then just based on one uh, phone call with another dictator, another authoritarian, President Erdogan of Turkey, he suddenly removed the troops. And at that moment, it literally, almost immediately, Turkey invades to try to create a 10-mile a ten corridor. There's, a, as people know, we don't have time to get into it, a long history of issues between Turkey and Kurds because there's a Kurdish minority in Turkey, which is also in Iraq and Syria, and the Turks have uh, been fighting against it since it wants at least autonomy, if not independence. Uh, and so this has been a, a core kind of uh, small, smoldering civil war within Turkey uh, for generations, more than generations, back to the Ottoman Empire. And so that we would do it in this way, that Trump would be so weak as to have one phone call with Erdogan and then completely sell out an ally is amazing. And in addition, it should be understood that Turkey's goal is literally ethnic cleansing, that they want to move illegally a whole lot of Arab refugees from Syria, from the Syrian war, into this corridor onto Kur to Kurdish land as a buffer between Syria and Turkey. And that's illegal as well. You can't just go and move refugees' populations into other lands. You actually have, a, have you know, an international obligation to provide asylum, something that Trump also doesn't understand. So in the end, this actually probably has implications for impeachment because outraging his own party this way and being this sort of unstable. His whole, his whole foreign policy team, for the most part, didn't know about or expect this. This is a personal decision, and this is what you get with Trump's leadership. This is a very impulsive man who doesn't know very much, but thinks he knows everything, and who just cuts deals, especially with authoritarians. And I agree with those who are saying uh, that we need to figure out what Putin's role in this, because as it's been said, all roads lead to Putin when it comes to Donald Trump. Yeah, so I mentioned this last week that uh, when I was driving back from Eau Claire, and it was uh, the day, it was last, last Wednesday evening, that a lot of the right-wing talk shows were really starting to go after Trump, and it was military types that were upset. 
I think, and, and this is the question I pose to both of you, um, is this, uh, it, could this potentially be the, be, be the thing that starts to build real momentum within parts of the Republican Party for impeachment? And, and, and part of this is we're talking about other issues that have flared up. The Republican base has kind of, all, kind of been there with Trump on most of his stuff. Whereas this actually, this is something that goes to the core of their base that was that is appalling to them, and really questions him and his decision making, and whether he would, if he would turn on these kinds of values and turn on, you know, this base that they start to lose, really start to believe that this is not someone who even truly rep- represents their right wing conservative, uh, nationalistic type. <laughs> Uh, uh, values. So my, you know, and I, I've been very much about not believing that impeachment was going to mount to anything. And I'm starting to believe that it is possible this could lead to something because of this. And it's not really the core of what's in the impeachment as much as what was done here in Syria. Um, Both of you, I'd be curious for your thoughts as to whether you think this will lead to something. Rebecca, you can go first. I know you suggested you might, you're, you're not sure that that's yeah. going to lead to anything, but your, your thoughts. It's interesting. I think, um, you know, you saw, I don't know if either of you saw this, but uh, Laura Trump, uh, Eric Trump's wife, uh, was on Fox News the other day saying that for most Trump voters, they think Kurds are a cheese in Wisconsin. So just to bring it back to the state. But I think that's kind of like she's very much like a, a Trump administration surrogate. And so I think the narrative that's being pushed um, or, or the spin that they're trying to put is that most of their base and their voters don't really care about who the Kurds are or what we're doing in, you know, a part of the country on the other side of the world. And I think, like, there's probably some truth to that. You know, I think the point that you just, you know, alluded to that you raised last week of listening to right-wing radio, um, driving around Wisconsin and hearing, you know, military folks call up um, from across the state, super concerned, definitely is reflected in the votes. And so, you know, we talked about the House voting um, to to condemn the move. All seven members of Wisconsin's House delegation voted, um, you know, voted along with the with this vote. So, you know, it was a unified bipartisan vote, not just like nationally, but like very much here in Wisconsin. And so I, I just don't think that Republican members of the House would have voted that way if they didn't feel like there was like strong sentiments among segments of their constituents to do so. Um, I think some people are principled, but I think a lot of them are are very um, responsive to whichever way the wind is blowing in their districts. And so, so that's like part of what I think, but to answer your question more fully, do I think this is going to set off some momentum towards impeachment? I, I don't think so. I mean, this isn't the first time that we've seen, Republicans in Congress or the Republican establishment denounced something Trump has said or done. And yet, like, just like the next day or a week later, rally to his side around like Michael Cohen or like whatever it might be. So I don't necessarily have high hopes. I don't know, Robert, what do you think? We're, we're, we're going to quick take a break. We'll get Robert's thoughts right on the backside of this uh, break. And uh, after that, we'll uh, head into some state issues. You're listening to the Battleground Wisconsin. We're Citizen Action. You can find us at citizenactionwi.org. Welcome back to the Battleground Wisconsin. 
We are talking about Trump and his decisions in Syria. And uh, this week, Wednesday, 129 Republicans in the House voted to rebuke Trump and his policy. And uh, the question I posed uh, to the panel was, do you think that this will start to lead to more momentum for impeachment? Robert, you were about to talk before we had to go to break. Look, I think what Rebecca said at the other end of the break is is correct, that uh, their support for impeachment in the general public, Republican or Democrat, isn't going to increase because of of, it, of an obscure foreign policy issue. And when I say obscure, I mean no one got – everyone broke underestimating the, foreign, the lack of foreign policy knowledge or international knowledge in the American electorate of, of all of both parties and among independents, and I doubt that Five percent of any of uh, of the of the voters of either party can identify where where the Kurdish territory is in the world, right? Let alone uh, explain the whole history of of, of of the Kurds as a stateless ethnicity. Uh, but what? But I do think that what's happening here is important because validators for Republicans, that is the Lindsey Graham's of the world, other you know your your Sensenbrenners, etc., are saying it's awful. And so when you have Republican conservative opinion leaders saying it's awful, that is, what, that is what's listened to by Republican voters. But still, you don't want to overinterpret it because a Lindsey Graham is terrified of one thing, and that is being primaried in South Carolina and losing his Senate seat. And what would primary him, he thinks is supporting impeachment anyway, but he clearly feels comfortable opposing Trump on this, partly because he's not going to be turned out over taking a different position on Syria and uh, the treatment of the Kurds and how we're dealing with Turkey. So in other words, the fact that the foreign policy issue gives him the ability to look like a statesman. But I do think, given how, you know, Trump literally having a meltdown yesterday, according to Democrats, and causing them to leave a meeting, and apparently Republicans being pulled by his behavior, so his continuing um, instability and aberrant behavior all and what he did here, which is also aberrant behavior, just changing foreign policy to dime in this way, in a, in a disgusting way, that those things might into, into, uh, lead into their calculations. But they still have to make a judgment that uh, they're not going to lose primaries uh, to, to, to Trump-supporting Republicans if they move forward. That is still the major thing, keeping Republicans behind Donald Trump and nothing else about political power. We'll continue to monitor this and talk about this uh, in upcoming weeks and see if this does lead to anything. But we need to talk about what's been going on in Wisconsin this week. So I want to change change topics to the GOP uh, legislators and their effort now. Uh, they uh, unveiled a plan on Tuesday which would prevent Governor Evers from using his veto to increase spending in the state budget. Uh, they're proposing a constitutional amendment. Um, folks, I, obviously, Rebecca, I want to start with you and get your thoughts, but um, this just seems like an, just another effort to restrict the governor. And I, I'll just add, for folks who remember when we went through the lame duck, um, one of the things that Robin Voss pointed out was that the governor had that this really didn't amad, uh, amount to a major power grab because the governor still had the strongest veto in the country. And uh, obviously, uh, they want to try to remove that, too. Rebecca? Yeah, the Wisconsin Examiner details like a pretty extraordinary exchange that happened at the public hearing um, on Tuesday about this 
this proposed measure. And it was an exchange between uh, David Craig, who's a legislator in southeast Wisconsin, um, a, comes out, a state senator comes out of Big Ben, and state senator uh, Lena Taylor. And I feel like their exchange really gets to the heart of what you were you were asking about, Matt, about like what the different rationales are here. Uh, and really what Senator Craig kept coming back to is this idea that all they're trying to do <laughs> is manage the balance of powers, that actually they're trying to put things in its proper balance as intended by the founders. And, you know, the legislature has the power of the purse, and we're just trying to make sure that that remains the case. And they're just trying to keep things on the straight and narrow. And it's all like, of course, as we've talked about the show, like over and over again, incredibly disingenuous. They made no attempts to do this while we had a Republican governor. And, you know, I think what was like really fascinating about that exchange in the examiner, and I don't know if you'll link to it in the show notes, but it's kind of a great article, um, is Senator Taylor saying like that balance already exists. The people of Wisconsin elected the governor. The governor got more votes than any of you because you have an illegitimate majority through unfair gerrymandering. Um, and you're just doing this because the governor decided to give more money to public education. And so, like, you're so upset that the governor is funding public education that you are now trying to take away his power. And so that, that was a kind of extraordinary exchange. But I can't see a way in which they don't get to move forward with with what they're trying to do. I mean, it's, it's, they're framing it as if it's really just a continuation of generations of trying to reign in executive power and something that's in line with the founders. But of course, what we know is that it's just more of the same power grab and like retribution against the democratic governor. And because of, because of, you know, gerrymandering and their illegitimate majorities, they're, they're able to do a lot of that. Um, of course, like m much of this is being discussed in the courts, you know, in terms of their approach, but still they have extraordinary power. I don't know. What do you think, Robert? Well, I think that the modern Republican Party, which has been taken over by extremely ideological right-wing uh, conservatives, uh, is only about power and doesn't have consistent principles other than that. And so, quite frankly, I could respect a conservative principled position if they had always had this position, right? And that they, you know, whoever was governor. But this willingness to basically try to take away the powers of a Democratic governor that they would not try to take away from the Republican governor is outrageous. And it really is an affront to the whole history of conservatism because traditional conservatism that came from Edmund Burke, one of the great, you know, framers of it. In, in in the late 18th century and and in uh, in Great Britain and, and very early 19th century, was that you give deference to the decisions of past generations because they were based on all sorts of deliberation and reasons and traditions, and in fact it uh, that it's in Burke's opinion it was uh, basically uh, uh, arrogant to believe that you could just reinvent the world and knew better than your predecessors. You had to evolve it very carefully and give and give both deference and credibility to what was decided in the past. Here, they just got to change positions willy-nilly. So, but they're going to get away with it in part because it probably will lead to a, a, a popular constitutional amendment, not because um, it takes away executive power, but because progressives and Democrats and mainline Democrats have not done a very good job of explaining that you can't get social economic justice without more revenue. And so the public has been primed since everyone says they're lowering taxes to think that anything that prevents spending is a good thing.
uh, even though they're not making the association that that means my schools uh, get undermined as uh, and 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 don't have the the money to to have a high quality education as as uh, Rebecca pointed out. But that is not the way the public is going to read it because progressives and especially mainline Democrats have not done their job to make the case for revenue with the public over the decades. Obviously, I tend to agree. I agree with what both of you had to say about just their motivations on this. And this is likely to go through in terms of getting through the legislature and getting to the public. So we'll continue to watch this. It definitely reveals the hypocrisy for all of what you said. Uh, Before we go to the next break, though, I do want to mention, so this week, uh, Will, the Wisconsin Institute for Law and Liberty, announced that they are going to bring a case to the Supreme Court that would essentially remove a couple hundred thousand voters from the polls uh, because they've moved. Uh, panel, Rebecca, I, this is, just seems like more of the same voter suppression out of these Republicans. It's just so insidious, as if we didn't have enough voter suppression. You know, most, most folks agree that the entire outcome of this presidential election is going to come down to Wisconsin, and the outcome of Wisconsin is going to come down to how many Democratic voters can and do vote. Obviously, you know, we've got to win over independence and and whatever else, but um, that is really like the whole ballgame. So it's like not super shocking that this is going to continue to be the strategy. I think what's incumbent upon us is just like to marshal like as much, obviously as much opposition as possible to things like this, but as much of an effort as possible over the next, Oh, it's almost a year to election day. Wow. Um, over the next year yep. to make sure that, you know, people are able to exercise their right to vote um, in spite of all of this voter suppression. But it is really um, dispiriting and it's a huge disadvantage um, for democracy generally, but like certainly for, you know, any candidate who's who's hoping to turn out a larger voter turnout. You know, and, and Republicans traditionally over generations have pursued a strategy of hoping less people vote, um, particularly less people of color and less less poor folks, but like less people vote. And so, yeah, I mean, this is like it is more of the same, Matt. Well, it's very similar to the vote purges, the voter purges that have gone on in other states, which are a form of disenfranchisement. And it's absolutely outrageous that qualified voters have been turned away from the polls because of these vote purges based on faulty data. There is no evidence of this, of, of there being voter fraud as a result of these address changes. People simply change their address, uh, what, you know, at the polls or what they, or, or as soon as they have all of their documentation, right? And so this is simply an attempt. Uh, to suppress the vote, uh, and it's amazing in a democracy that we have a whole political party that is dedicated to people voting less. And remember, the reason that disproportionately affects low-income people and people of color is because they move a lot more because they have housing insecurity. Anyone who's done organizing of low-income workers knows that they're changing addresses very, very regularly, whereas middle-class, middle-class people buy a house and stay in it for decades. And so this has a disproportionate impact. It's clear what it's about. And the Wisconsin of Law and Liberty is a basically a Republican campaign operation funded through tax-deductible donations, which is itself a scandal. And it is neither for law nor is it for liberty. It's simply for partisan advantage.
And this is a good reminder to our listeners why we need to be hyper-involved in the elections in 2020. We have to do everything we can to get out the vote. Wisconsin is going to be critical. But with that, we got to wrap up this section of the Battleground Wisconsin. We're going to take a break on the backside of this break. We're going to have a discussion about impeachment with Karen Kirsch and Robert Craig. You're listening to the Battleground Wisconsin with Citizen Action. You can find us at citizenactionwi.org. Welcome back to Battleground Wisconsin. This is Robert Craig, and as Matt said at the end of the other segment, we're doing a special two segments on impeachment. And I'm going to talk about impeachment, but to cross-examine me, we have uh, an organizer from Citizen Action Wisconsin, the uh, Healthcare for All co-op organizer, Karen Kirsch, who also is very well-versed in uh, current affairs, uh, part of her job, but also part of the, who she is. So, Karen, thank you for joining us. Well, thank you for having me. I've been following this issue um, for a little bit right now, and um, I have to say, I smell impeachment pie. I've been waiting to say that for a while. Can you tell? I don't know. Hopefully it has a good taste. (laughs) We shall see. So, Robert, let's start off with the history and the origin of impeachment. I have a feeling that it has something to do with checks and balances, it does, but it goes way back in uh, in in Great Britain and the development of the of of British government and the parliamentary system. So their impeachments back to the ten hundreds, literally, and that's where the term exists. Uh, but it it developed over time. It was about removing officials who had violated their public charge, who had vi- who had abused their offices, and so it has always been focused on that. Uh, in fact, that we'll get to the term, but the term high crimes and misdemeanors um, actually has a usage back to the 15 and 1600s in England. So it was a, it was a term of art, so to speak, that the framers of the, of the U.S. Constitution knew. And that's why they used it. So when people are thinking of high crimes and misdemeanors, they need to think of the historical use of that term as opposed to the modern definition of a misdemeanor, which we all know as... A crime like embezzlement or... Yes, though misdemeanors in the criminal code could can be significant, uh, not as significant as major felonies. Uh, but the truth is, is that when they, there's a lot of debate at the Constitutional Convention about whether to have an impeachment clause and, uh, and how to word it. And there were different earlier wordings in the discussion. Uh, but the historians believe there would not have been a federal constitution. It wouldn't have been ratified if it hadn't had an impeachment provision. And that's because there was so much fear of a president becoming a monarch. They had come to the conclusion after the Arctic Confederation experience, which was too decentralized, that they needed a strong executive. But they were terrified, given their experience of a monarchy or, or an authoritarian leader rising up. And so they really thought there needed to be a way to remove a president that was abusing their office. And what high crime, remember, the term is treason, bribery, and other high crimes and misdemeanors. So it, uh, high crimes and misdemeanors is at the level of treason and bribery. And it refers literally to the abuse of public office. It's public crimes. It has nothing to do with whether something is a violation of an existing criminal statute or not, which is something the defenders of Trump and Robert Mueller have confused the public about. It's not about that. In fact, 
if it was, then a, 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 an abusive president could change the criminal laws not to be guilty of them, right? And so it literally is, it, it is the judgment of the House of Representatives and then ultimately the Senate to convict, but it literally is about someone abusing the power of their office, so much so they should be removed. And in addition, it's also about threatening the whole stability of the republic. In other words, if a president grabs too much power, abuses power too much, then literally the, the checks and balances you point out uh, in the system uh, get undermined and it has long-term consequences. So it could be the loss of the public trust. It could if it was significant enough. It's a political judgment. I mean, by politics, I mean the realm of politics, not partisan kind of low politics. Uh, to make the judgment how bad it is and whether it justifies removal, but it can't be literally just a personal, you know, crime. It can't be something like they committed adultery. That's not a public crime, right? Even though people might be offended by that and the president might not be reelected, depending on what era of American history uh, he was running in. Um, so it's literally about abusing the power of the office, and it's a check and balance. So it literally has to rise to the level that it does, at some level, threaten the balance in, in the U.S. government. It also does, based on the debates at the Constitutional Convention, do, does apply to the way the, the a president gained office. In other words, gaining office in a fraudulent way uh, could be grounds for impeachment. Okay. So let's talk about the times that impeachment was used. Um, I think most people could name the two more modern cases, but let's start off with the first case. Yeah, and remember, they we've heard from Trump defenders that the election takes care of it. The framers decided that's not enough. In fact, an abusive president could be reelected. A lot of dictators have been elected at some point and then taken all the power uh, to themselves. Also, private gain is part of it. Using the office of private gain is an abuse of power, right, or for personal advantage, like political advantage. And so the first was around Andrew Johnson, who was Lincoln's running mate. He was brought on, you know, during a very tough 1864 election in the middle of the Civil War. We actually had an election in the middle. And he, it was a bipartisan ticket where he was a Democrat who was a unionist from Tennessee, and the problem was he really didn't see eye to eye with Lincoln. Actually, the plot was supposed to assassinate him, but the person that was part of John Wilkes Booth's crowd that was supposed to assassinate him lost their nerve. And so we end up with Lincoln assassinated and Andrew Johnson not. And Andrew Johnson, post-Civil War, uh, literally, uh, he was such a racist. And I mean, you know, this is a country that was very racist at the time that he sought to undermine Congress and the whole idea that we were going to hold, uh, not only hold Confederates responsible, but actually provide any kind of level of economic justice, equal citizenship to African Americans. And the radical Republicans, as they were called at the time, who controlled con Congress, eventually uh, decided to impeach him. They, they set a trap for him. They uh, created something called a Tenure of Office Act, which was found unconstitutional later and certainly was, that said that he couldn't remove any cabinet secretaries without congressional approval. A little bit like uh, some of the lame duck laws in, in Wisconsin recently that the legislature slapped on Governor Evers. Uh, and so they did that to protect uh, Secretary of War Stanton, who they thought he would go after. So when he fired Secretary of War Stanton, then they impeached him. And he actually was impeached by the House. The House impeaches. 
And then in the Senate, they, uh, they need two-thirds to convict, and it came within one vote. But most scholars would say that it wasn't there was grounds to be very upset with Andrew Johnson, but that he had not abused his office fundamentally, at least not in terms of the articles that were offered by the House and, and, and judged by the Senate. Interesting. Well, let's talk about um, Richard Nixon. So Nixon's the most famous. He actually was not impeached because he resigned uh, prior to impeachment. Uh, though based on his notion that he could not survive, that he would have been impeached and then convicted in the Senate. Uh, it was abuse of power very clearly. He was using his office to investigate and undermine his political opponents. That was the first stage. And the second stage was the obstruction. And uh, a lot of legal scholars think that obstruction of justice may not be impeachable in and of itself. We'll get to that with Clinton unless the underlying crime is impeachable, is a public crime, right, an abuse of office. But Nixon's clearly were, and of course he, very different than Trump, had this very different stance as a statesmanly leader, and so as things came out about what the real Nixon was doing, he had much less of a defense because it was way more revealing of this real Nixon underneath the surface. And the tapes are what are key. Without tapes, he never would have been impeached, and they came out accidentally in the inquiry. Alexander Butterfield just answered a preliminary kind of pro forma question by a congressman saying, is there a taping system? Just they were asking a bunch of questions. He goes, yes, there is. And there was silence. Like, everyone stops. What? Hot? There's a taping system? And we're able to get them. The Supreme, he tried to withhold them. The Supreme Court grabbed them. One interesting uh, argument, though, about Nixon uh, that some legal scholars have made is he actually did two way more impeachable things that he was not impeached on. And one was that he and Henry Kissinger literally conspired to undermine a peace deal with North Korea by Lyndon Johnson, the outgoing president, because they thought it would have cost Nixon the election, which it probably would have, an extremely close election with Hubert Humphrey. That's literally treason. And there's, it's now documented that happened. And the second thing is, is the illegal uh, bombing of Cambodia, which ended up killing... You know, uh, uh, if you look at what happened to Cambodia, millions of people and was completely illegal. Uh, so he had done other impeachable things as well, but he was impeached on the political crimes, that is literally the Watergate break-in and the using his office you know, it, to, for personal pol and political gain, mostly political gain. Well, what's interesting on in that case is I did hear Lindsey Graham talk about um, the impeachment of Nixon going back into a time machine. I think it's kind of interesting that he said that Nixon, by obstructing the inquiry, um, should be should have been impeached. Um, can we go ask Lindsey Graham how he feels about that sentiment today? I'd like to know. And he felt the same way about Bill Clinton, which I know we're, we'll get to in the next segment. Uh, and so for Mr. Graham, and this is a discussion, it was an impeachable offense until it wasn't, right? So, in other words, until he was defending a president who was facing impeachment. It was an impeachable defense until he was up for election coming up, right? Yeah, there's that too. Right now, as we, as we, we're going to talk a little bit after the break more about Trump, but uh, there's terror of being primaried if, if by any Republican senator or, or, or member of Congress who dares to uh, cross uh, to President Trump right now. But we have to take a quick break, uh, and then we'll be right back on Battleground Wisconsin.
Okay, welcome back to Battleground Wisconsin. This is Robert Craig and Karen Kirsch, our Healthcare for All organizing co-op organizer, is interviewing me on impeachment. So take it away, Karen. Hi, everyone. It's a pleasure to be here. Let's, um, we just covered Nixon and impeachment. Let's talk about Bill Clinton. Well, Bill Clinton took, um, had a, obviously a, an, an undeniable moral discretion. We don't have to get into it any further. I think it was you know, a terrible act for someone, uh, a man of his power. Uh, but um, it was not, uh, the, the reason it was probably, according to most legal scholars, not impeachable is because it was not an abuse of his office, the powers of his office. It was not a public crime, and that's what was meant and what the history of, of, of the impeachment clause, high crimes and misdemeanors. What he was ultimately, though, we had, the Republicans put in a very uh, conservative uh, special prosecutor, Kenneth Starr, and Kenneth Starr carried on. The investigation started with Whitewater, and they found nothing on all the stuff they were investigating that was impeachable. People forget the Whitewater scandal, quote-unquote scandal, which was kind of made up by the right-wing infrastructure. Uh, but then, uh, they, then, then this happened, and so he was investigated for this, and he lied about it. And so he was really impeached for obstructing justice, for lying. Uh, but a lot of I think most legal scholars would say that you, that you, that it's not impeachable to obstruct justice on a non-impeachable underlying act, okay, which is uh, which is immoral, but was not an abuse of the powers of his office. But it does show how partisan the Republican Party had become in the Newt Gingrich era, and how ruthless it was. And I think that we're still seeing that in, in now the flip side of that, the defense of Donald Trump. And let's remind everyone um, what was the outcome of that. Uh, he was, not only was he not convicted in the Senate, a number of Republicans, uh, senators voted uh, to acquit. So it didn't even come even remotely close in the Senate. But it was done in the, in the very partisan and kind of, they weren't, you didn't have the word yet, but Tea Party-like uh, lower house of representatives. Okay, interesting. So uh, there has been a Fox News poll that came out late last week. And you should be interested to know that 51% are in favor of impeachment and removal of President Donald Trump as currently. 66% um, think it's wrong to ask foreign leaders to investigate a political rival, which actually gives me a little bit of faith in the American public. I've lost some faith, but that restores it a little bit. I think people recognize that it's wrong, no matter what. Even if I even if I played devil's advocate, and Hunter Biden supposedly did something. If you had actual evidence other than the usual sliminess in Washington, right, he right. got a good job because he was the vice president's son. But there was no there's no proof of any wrongdoing beyond that. Is nepotism a case to ask for a foreign leader to investigate your political rival? I, I don't think so. And 66% of the American public think it's wrong. So, I mean, I'm happy about that. But where are we currently with the situation? Well, and this parallels Watergate because people have this looking backwards through a rosy-colored mist, this idea it was all very bipartisan. Republicans were all very concerned it took a while, and only a few Republicans actually ever crossed over. The bulk of Republicans were still supporting Nixon. Just enough had crossed over to give it some sense of bipartisanship, but the polls moved as revelations occurred. 
And so it's likely in this inquiry, the impeachment inquiry, as more and more damning details come out, which looks like going to be the case here, we'll see, uh, that uh, it, it even drives the numbers higher, which means projections now as to whether he can be convicted in the Senate or not may very well be premature. It's very clear that he will likely be impeached by the House unless he, they come up with something very exculpatory. And it's hard to know what that would be, given you figure it would already be out there if there was some defense uh, that, Trump, that Donald Trump had that was effective. But let me get to, if Karen, I think we should talk about how impeachable this is and how impeachable other things the president has done are. And I would say this, uh, Robert Mueller has confused the public greatly in trying to be principled. I think he was a good man who was trying to be very principled and to be above politics. But what he did is he, he initiated, he conducted a criminal investigation about whether Trump had violated a federal statute, a conspiracy statute. Um, this is in, in, in cooperating with the Russians in the uh, 2016 election, and it's clear they did intervene. He proved they intervened, but he said there wasn't sufficient evidence that they, uh, there was, that they actually had a plan to conspire together. The word collusion was not the word that Trump keeps using and Fox News keeps using. And that you need to, li they literally need to have a plan, like I'll do this, you do that, and then it will lead to this. And that's the way this the federal, federal, I trust Robert Mueller, that's how the federal law is written. That's not about impeachment. Impeachment is not about the wording or, or the structure of a specific federal law at, at any time. It is about something higher than this. It is about public crimes as decided by Congress, abuses of office, and, and obtaining office in a uh, illegitimate way is impeachable, literally welcoming rushing interference and giving them polling information and et cetera, et cetera, was impeachable. You can figure, that's a political judgment, how impeachable? I mean, it's, very, it's definitely impeachable and he's not exonerated. But remember, there's no question in the Mueller report that he um, obstructed justice and the coded way he described it where the public couldn't figure it out was is that the Justice Department has a rule that you can't indict a, a sitting president is why he wasn't indicted. But uh, remember, obstruction of justice on an, a, an underlying offense that is impeachable is itself impeachable. So, the pro, the, the, so this is all impeachable offenses, and probably with Democratic majorities in Congress, he would have been impeached. We have a very partisan age right now. Uh, but um, the reason this uh, Ukraine... Uh, uh, you know, incident and scandal has become much more impeachable is first, after all that, he did it again, which really shows you something, right? But the second thing is, it's a clearer narrative. In other words, since impeachment does involve politics in the sense that the lower house, which is closest to the people, according to the framers, uh, decides whether to impeach or not, it makes sense that they thought that, it, that, uh, that public opinion would matter, but they also want elected officials to rise higher and think not just about the next election, but to think about the future of the republic and whether it was uh, the checks and balances in it that were, they put together were unbalanced by the abuse of power by the president. In this case, there's no question of that either, because if a president can use the full power of their office and foreign policy and all of the money we put out and all of the relationships and the value of our relationship to other foreign countries to intervene in elections on their behalf, then you don't have a, repu a, a, a republic anymore. Because literally, 
president already has huge electoral advantages. If they can gain that level of advantage, use the full power of the office, the presidency, which is far more powerful now than it was in 1787, then it does unbalance the republic. So this is a threat if you allow it to continue, quite frankly, to the whole structure of our government. So Robert, let me ask you this. If in playing devil's advocate, some people might think that pursuing this process of impeachment would actually hurt us because it might set us up for an electoral loss. What would you say to those people? I would say, first of all, it's really hard to predict electorally what could be better or worse, right? In other words, not impeaching, not following up on this actually is going to offend a lot of people in the base of the Democratic Party. So I think it's not necessarily clear-cut that ducking and seeming unprincipled necessarily is the best thing politically. But even if they're right, and it is the most politically pragmatic thing to do, I think that what impeachment calls on us to do is to really think about something beyond the next election. That what the founders were hoping is, is that we'd be able to think about the republic and the long term, right, and the future of our institutions, right? And so the issue here is, is that if you do not impeach Trump for these impe highly impeachable crimes, you're creating a precedent that this is allowable. And so even if Trump is ultimately voted in office and doesn't uh, commit a whole lot of other transgressions, you've changed the structure of our democracy, right, by it, already. And I think that what we're thinking about here is literally something that is timeless. There's been a lot by right-wing judges of misuses of the Constitution to impose conservative philosophy, right, uh, to, to try to halt progress, so to speak. But the impeachment clause is timeless in the sense that if you're going to have a structure of government with a legislative branch and an executive branch, and the executive is so powerful that you could end up with an authoritarian form of government, right, you're going to have to have a clause for removing executives that, that try to take too much power and abuse their power. Otherwise, you do end up being like Russia or being like a lot of other countries that that were democratic for a while and then lost their, their democratic way. And so what the founders put in the Constitution around impeachment is still very relevant to our structure of government, and we are making a decision way beyond the 2020 elections. I also just tend to have faith, Karen, that if, and I think Democrats need to be not react in fear anymore, that if you do the right thing, the public will eventually uh, give you credit for that, and it will will out. And this idea that that being cowardly, ducking constitutional responsibilities is good for a political leader, we've just got to push back against it. And ultimately, I think the public does see through that. I agree. So that's all the time we have. Karen, we should have you back. You're great on the podcast. So we're glad to have had you on Battleground Wisconsin. Well, thank you very much for having me. I enjoyed it. And that's it for Battleground Wisconsin. Uh, you can find us at citizenactionwi.org, and we will see you next week.